A lot of progress has been made over the years to reduce health disparities in New York City, but substantial inequalities remain among New Yorkers of different economic, racial, and ethnic groups. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Over the past few months, I've been looking into a variety of health issues facing the city's immigrant communities, from an alarmingly high rate of diabetes among Bangladeshis to a lack of knowledge about AIDS in Chinese circles. The number of reported AIDS cases has declined among the white population in recent years, but research shows that it's increased for Asian Americans. Ask someone on the streets of Manhattan's Chinatown to talk health issues, specifically about AIDS, and you might get a surprising answer. What is AIDS? Can you explain more about it? I I don't know what is AIDS. AIDS is an acquired immune deficiency syndrome. It's a disease that people can get through sexual transmission. Oh, AIDS. Okay. Yeah, I, I never thought about it before. That's Amy Pan. She's 24 and of Chinese descent. Pan says AIDS is a topic that just doesn't come up in her circles. She says she knows it's a problem in rural China, but not much more. When asked if she thinks the disease impacts New York City's Chinese community, she says... I don't think Chinese people here got got AIDS. Hunter College professor John Chin researches the prevalence of AIDS in Asian American communities, particularly here in New York City. He says the disease carries a big stigma in Asian culture, making it hard to raise awareness. Chin says many Asian immigrants rely heavily on places of worship for information. But he says religious institutions are often reluctant to address HIV. Some of it has to do with the kinds of behaviors that are associated with HIV, homosexual behavior, drug use, um, sex work, those types of things. But at least one monk in Manhattan's Chinatown is working to educate the community. Ben Kong is the resident monk at Grace Gratitude Buddhist Temple. He says Asian immigrants have a lot of misconceptions about AIDS. It's still considered a gay issue, not a straight issue. I think it's taken on an ethnicity, too. Chinese people don't get it. Ben Kong says until someone like Magic Johnson makes an HIV announcement in the Asian community, knowledge of AIDS will likely remain muddled. You can hear more about efforts to raise awareness about AIDS in New York City's Chinese community at WFUVnews.org. A lot of us get the blues every now and then, but if you're faced with severe depression, it may be time to seek professional help. For members of the Bronx's Latino community, taking that step can be challenging, especially for men. Mental health professionals say machismo often gets in the way of them seeking help. They say it's considered a sign of weakness for a Latino man to admit to any kind of psychological distress. The Fordham-Tremont Community Mental Health Center is a lifeline for many Latino men and women in the South Bronx, including a Puerto Rican woman by the name of Zareda, who asked that we withhold her last name. I'm a single parent. I got two beautiful daughters, ages 21 and 15. They my biggest motivation in life. I can see that they are. You're welling up. Yeah. And they always tell me I'm the best mom in the world. That makes me feel happy and proud as a mom. I go to the parents' teachers' conference also. I stay involved in school. My youngest daughter, Tiffany, she's an honorable student since sixth grade. So even though I, suffer, I, I, I suffer from depression and anxiety, I try my best as, to be the best mom and be involved in her education. When did you realize that you did indeed have depression and anxiety? Okay. 
everything started back in 1995 when my brother was, my youngest brother was homicide. And me and him were very close. We had a close relationship, and that caused me to become depressed. He was shot here in the Bronx. How old was he? At that time, he was 30 years old. He was a great father, a great son, a great brother. He had many beautiful qualities in a man. Now, sometimes when things like that happen, it's natural for us to get depressed. You know, we're down, and then life goes on. But I would imagine, was there a point for you where you realized that life just wasn't going on the way it should? Even though there's times I still get sad about it, I try my best to continue because my daughters, they need me as a mom. So I try being there for them 100%. And I, I tell them I'm their um, mom, sister, and best friend. When did you decide that you needed to seek someone's help? I mean, when you first started to have these feelings and you felt badly, who did you turn to initially? I started getting um, crying a lot, feeling ir- irritable, um, losing weight. So then I realized I needed to seek out for help. So I came here, and they g- gave me the help I needed. Was that difficult for you? Uh, taking that step for help? Yes, a little bit. Because it took me like eight months, close to eight months after my brother was homicide to come and seek out for help. Why did it take so long? I think because people out there, sometimes they think if you um, in a psychiatric place, you're kind of crazy. Is that a common perception, do you think, in the community, particularly among Latinos? I think probably this is the reason why some Latinos don't come out and seek out for uh, help. Mental health professionals say low socioeconomic status is also a barrier to mental health services for Bronx Latinos. They say when you're among the working poor, it's hard to find enough time in the day to come in for care. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Despite progress in improving overall health in New York City, substantial inequalities remain among New Yorkers of different economic, racial, and ethnic groups. Simona Kwan and Nadia Islam are both assistant professors at the NYU School of Medicine. I talked with them at length about health disparities in New York City. Dr. Islam started off the conversation by telling me about the work they do in this area at NYU. We have several um, health disparities research centers that are based here at NYU, and we're really focused on documenting and addressing health disparities, primarily in Asian American communities, but we work broadly across several ethnic and minority communities in New York City. We work closely in collaboration with community partners And the model we tend to use in the research that we do is community-based participatory research. So as an academic institution, we don't want to go into communities, um, you know, do a bunch of research um, without kind of having the context and knowledge and um, understanding of local community norms. I would imagine that trust is a big part of this. Definitely, definitely. So our centers have really been built up to partner closely with community organizations and community leaders, conduct needs assessments, um, really get a lay of the land in terms of what health disparities are affecting our communities, and then develop 
culturally tailored programs um, to try to address some of these health disparities. And a big reason um, for our centers, or I, I guess a, a way that our centers are really unique, are that, um, well, two things. One is that we do work in the Asian American community. We're actually currently the only federally funded um, Asian American Health Disparity Center of Excellence. Um, and a big issue for Asian American and Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander populations is that there's a real lack of data at the national level to actually demonstrate what some of our health disparities are. Um, there are a couple reasons for this. One is that data that is available is aggregated across Asian American and Native Hawaiian groups. Um, the other is that there, there's, you know, there has just been a general lack of understanding of some of the health issues that are faced by our communities. And so, one of our kind of big efforts is to be able to illuminate what health disparities actually do exist in our communities, and then um, really advocate and push for more programmatic and kind of funding resources and streams for these communities. So what health disparities do exist within Asian American communities here in New York City? You know, we're starting to tease apart the data that exists. As Dr. Islam said, that a lot of it is really aggregated. And in New York City, we have some of the largest, you know, subgroups of Asian Americans here. The lack of data has really hindered what we're looking at. And so one of the things that we have done is do all of our research um, using CBPR, the community-based participatory research process, coalitions really guide our research, and we rely on our community partners to help us identify what they're seeing in the communities and um, developing research um, proposals and applications based on um, the needs assessments that we conduct with our community partners, um, really um, pulling apart you know, what they're seeing anecdotally and trying to track that and uh, document it with data. So one of the largest disparities that we do see is around hepatitis B. Um, it's Less than 1% of the general population is infected with um, hepatitis B, but in some of our Asian communities, we're seeing numbers as high as 20%, um, and it, the range is really around 8% to um, 15% are infected with hepatitis B. And so it's an issue that hasn't gotten a lot of attention until um, pretty recently, and um, there's always been a lack of funding around the issue, and so the field hasn't moved forward. It hasn't gotten the attention that, you know, some like something like cardiovascular disease and health disparities around that has. Do you have an understanding as to why hepatitis B is more prevalent right now in Asian American communities? It's something that we're looking at. It's um, again, it's been underfunded, and so we don't have a lot of research on it. What we do know is that it's transmitted um, vertically, so it's passed from infected mother to child during the child birthing process, while in the more general population, it's, uh, it might be um, transmitted through uh, sexually transmitted diseases, you know, through um, sex or IV drug use. And so because there's a multi-pronged um, uh, transmission, it's it's been hard to really figure out, is it because there's lacks in vaccination in some of the Asian countries, the home countries that individuals are coming to the U.S. from, or is it just um, there's not universal screening for adults in the U.S., and so we're missing lots of cases. So, Dr. Islam, where does community outreach start with something like that, trying to raise awareness about hepatitis B? You know, I think we have a really great model for how we're trying to address that in in our hepatitis B center of excellence. Um, you know, as we've stated, we you know we really work closely with community partners to kind of lay the groundwork. We tend to do formative work, 
surveys, focus groups, you know, using a variety of methods to understand what what are the community's perceptions of this disease, what are some of the barriers they're facing. Um, and then what we see a lot in our communities is that there are lots of existing health campaigns out there, health campaigns, programs. Right now in New York City, we're seeing a big push towards policy level changes to address health issues. But what we often see for our communities is that they're really left out. Um, of that. And I think they're left out in lots of ways. One is that the messaging that's sent out is often not tailored for our communities. You know, at a basic level, sometimes it's not offered in the variety of languages that Asian communities speak. But on sort of a, a larger theoretical level, uh, messages and campaigns are often not tailored to reflect the needs or, you know, perceptions or, you know, cultural cultural beliefs of members of our community. So, um, you know, that that's something that we have tried to work on with our Hepatitis B project. We're developing a social marketing campaign. We, we've actually developed a social marketing campaign and are implementing it right now um, that promotes um, getting screened and vaccinated for Hepatitis B. Another model that we use a lot um, is the community health worker model. Most of my work focuses on addressing cardiovascular disease um, and related risk factors. And just like hepatitis B is a disparity, we are seeing that cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, diabetes, um, and, and related diseases are really becoming more prevalent in Asian American communities and in certain subgroups are much higher than the general population or other racial and ethnic minority communities. For example, among Asian Americans in the South Asian community, rates of diabetes are two to three times higher than other groups. In the Filipino community, rates of hypertension are much higher than other communities. And certain subgroups of the Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander communities have really astounding rates of being overweight and obese and relatedly having cardiovascular disease risk. Is that all an issue of diet? What's the reasoning behind that? I, I mean, I think, you know, what we... What we are seeing from the work in in this area is that it, it, you can't point to one factor, you know, in, in addressing these issues. And I think, you know, um, there is a tendency, for, particularly for immigrant communities, to think, oh, it's just that they move here and their diets are changing and they're adapting to a Western lifestyle. I think part of that, you know, we definitely see that part of that is the issue. I think um, there's different foods that are available here, you know, systems for you know, purchasing foods for eating out, you know, in terms of the availability of fast food and other types of processed food are more readily available here. Um, but I think what we also know is that, or what we also see in our communities is that they are not connected to the healthcare system often in a lot of ways. And, you know, and on a simple level, that's being insured versus, you know, not being insured, having that kind of, that, uh, you know, passport to engage with the healthcare system. But on there, I think there are more complex factors involved. You know, one of the big issues we have in our community is that there are very high rates of limited English proficiency among certain communities. Um, and it makes it very difficult to engage with the healthcare system, with your physician, with trying to schedule appointments, with trying to understand where to go in terms of referral care. And that's a huge issue in terms of. Um, management of chronic illnesses. And so I definitely think we see um, things are worse for certain communities because of issues like that. In which communities are things worse? 
So I, I, some of the communities that I highlighted, we know that rates of diabetes, for example, in the South Asian community, across South Asian communities, the Asian Indian community, the Bangladeshi community, the Pakistani community, are rising and are quite high. And we know that rates of uncontrolled diabetes are, are also an issue. Um, in the Filipino community, rates of hypertension are very high. And what we see in our New York City communities is that because um, segments of these populations really don't have good access to health care. Um, they're not able to effectively manage their illnesses. Um, and that's where the community health worker model really comes in. So community health workers are lay community leaders. Um, all of the community health workers that we work with did not have a health background when they started in this position, but they had strong leadership backgrounds in their communities. Many of them were community organizers in labor or, you know, in the arts or in, in other areas. And we brought them into these projects. Um, they went through a standardized core competency-based training for community health workers um, and then are really involved in developing and implementing culturally tailored programs for, for the Bangladeshi or the Filipino population, for example, to promote hypertension and, and diabetes control. When it comes to trust of the medical system, do you find that many of these communities simply don't trust the medical system? Actually, our communities have a lot of trust in the medical system, and more than anything, it's probably barriers to the system. Mm -hmm. Some of our um, communities, uh, I'll use the Chinese community, for example, have more of a dual health system. So you have um, traditional medicines um, working side by side with the biomedical health system. So there's not there's not a distrust of the biomedical system. It's just that the two arms are complementary. So if you're talking about a disease management, you would go to see your um, MD physician. But if you're talking about overall health and like well-being, you would rely on traditional medicine. So it's not either or in the system. I think more than anything, what we're seeing here in the U.S. is they don't have access to the medical system, and so they might rely more on the traditional system if, if that's something that's, number one, familiar with them. The person speaks the same language, and they can access it easily, while you know, a physician in a doctor's office in a hospital somewhere, where they have to travel to, they don't know how to negotiate um, finding the doctor's office even and how to fill out the paperwork. It's, it's going to be an easier pathway to a traditional medicine doctor. Where is the language barrier most prominent in New York City? It's really across. I think that there are certain communities that have higher rates of English language proficiency. Tip, for example, um, typically in the Indian community or in the Filipino community, there are higher rates, or the Japanese, for example. But we know in the Korean community, um, in other South Asian communities like the Bangladeshi community, in the Chinese community, in the Vietnamese community, there are very high rates of limited English proficiency. I think one thing we see in, in Asian subgroups as a whole is that they, they tend to have a bimodal distribution in terms of demographic characteristics. So even though there may be segments of the population that are speaking English, you know, at, at very high levels, there's usually, you know, a, um, a corresponding segment of the population that has very low rates of uh, proficiency as well. And, and most of the work that we do and the interventions we develop are really targeted to the most, the newly immigrant populations, and so we do see a lot of lingu um, language, uh, English, uh, limited English proficiency in that community, and then again, the second generation is very different from the first generation. When it comes to cultural beliefs and attitudes, are you finding that anything there specifically is getting in the way of people seeking medical treatment? Certainly in China, there's um, widespread stigma around hepatitis B and being infected. 
Um, and so they bring those beliefs to the U.S. And so people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to share that they're infected. Um, and hepatitis B is um, highly infectious. It's um, more infectious than HIV, and it's got the similar transmission rates and um, routes. And so it's um, talking about it and um, trying to share information and building an education or awareness campaign around it has been difficult because we have to address those, those stigmas and those cultural beliefs around uh, hepatitis B. I would imagine that it's important to get involved with religious institutions in these communities and get those leaders involved in talking about these things openly. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the work that we do in, for example, the Korean community, um, Korean immigrants in the U.S., you know, um, I've seen statistics around 70 percent of them attend church regularly. Um, our communities here in New York City, most of them are engaged in small businesses. They run their own um, uh, dry cleaners or um, are involved in um, small factories. And so they are working pretty much, you know, five, six, seven days a week. And so they don't have time off, but the, they will make time for churches. And that's the way we can reach out to them is partnering with churches. I think it just goes back to what you were saying earlier about trust. And I, I think it's um all about engaging with a diverse range of stakeholders. I think faith leaders play a really critical role in that, but other community leaders and, and kind of trusted institutions as well. And it's one of the reasons I think community health workers are very effective in their role because they they are from the community and they really serve as a bridge between community members and the healthcare system and um, are able to negotiate a lot of those cultural issues. So. Getting back to Korean Americans, I understand that they are less likely here in New York City to have health coverage because they're coming <coughs> here starting their own businesses right. and they're not buying insurance plans. Right, right. And the Korean, Ameri the Korean immigrant community is not any different from the other immigrant communities. A lot of them are engaged in very small businesses. They are um, deli workers or they own delis or they're restaurant workers, like the um, large uh, percentage of the Chinese immigrant communities. And so they don't get employee-sponsored health coverage, and so they are not insured and don't necessarily um, meet the lim uh, limits for public assistance health insurance. And so it's, it's, a, it's an issue in our communities. Mm -hmm. Do you get involved in that area, trying to get out there and helping people get health care coverage? Definitely. Um, you know, I think in a couple of different ways. One is it's a big focus of our research to really demonstrate accurately how access to care issues, including health insurance, but other issues as well, really impact health care. Um, but we do work with various community organizations. I think one good example is the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. We work closely with TWA in terms of developing their health rights and health, program, health pro programming campaigns. And that's a good example of a workforce that's almost universally uninsured. The recent study we did showed that a, a little bit above 50% of taxi drivers were uninsured because they are classified as independent contractors, again, small business owners that don't have access to employees sponsored health insurance. And you, you may know that taxi workers just got a recent victory in terms of receiving a fair raise and also allocated funding towards a health and disability fund. So I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Um, again, we, we've been working with TWA for a long time in terms of just helping develop some of those health programs. So. I do have to say, though, um, health insurance is not, yeah. is not the only thing that's um, keeping our communities from accessing health cares. Uh, one of the things we kept hearing when we went, we did some visits um, on the Hill just to talk about what we're seeing in our communities. We, we, uh, we went there with some of our community partners to talk about the research we're doing. And we kept hearing from some of the legislators, well, 
you know, with the Affordable Care Act, your communities will be covered and health disparities will go away, and which is just astounding. I mean, just because our communities get insured doesn't mean that they're going to go and access them. That navigation piece is still not there, mm-hmm. linking them to care, providing them with the um, services to really navigate and find people who speak the language, bridging some of the, the cultural um, beliefs and stigmas that um, could be used to help facilitate entry into care as well as could be a challenge into entry into care. Those are all things that we still need to think about and manage. I also think, you know, making health care relevant to the communities that it's serving. You know, we see this a lot in developing programs for cardiovascular disease management. If you're speaking with an individual with diabetes from Bangladesh or from the Philippines, your approach can't be to tell them they can't eat their native foods. I mean, I think for immigrants who are often working in low-wage positions, very hard jobs, 16 hours a day, um, their kind of community, you know, those types of things are are what they have left at the end of the day, you know, to be able to eat in their own foods and shop in their own neighborhoods. And so I think, you know, really working with programs to make sure that, you know, if you are modifying diet, you know, uh, diet or offering um, menus and that type of thing, you know, to make sure that they're tailored for the communities is, is going to be really important. I also wanted to add, and um, something that Dr. Islam had pointed out earlier is that there's kind of been an emphasis on these population approaches to affecting health disparities and really trying to change health disparity rates and, and, and achieving health equity. But just like some of our communities are getting missed um, being connected to healthcare systems and things, they're not being reached by these population-based approaches either. Some of the things that have um, been implemented more recently are, you know, things around employee-based workplace initiatives around, you know, increasing walking, you know, stairwells in the buildings or um, offering, um, you know, workplace interventions around diabetes prevention and management. And these are ways that you can you can affect wide groups of um, individuals in a population. But again, our communities are not necessarily engaged in workplace, you know, office building kind of jobs. And so they're, again, being missed by those or some of these um, policy level changes that are being implemented, like, um, you know, increasing restaurants that are smoke-free and bars that are smoke-free. If you're in an ethnic enclave, that's kind of being missed by some of these enforcements. It's it's kind of, it's a little bit easier to get around those. And it's if you're not engaging the communities and working with them to build that support, it's not necessarily going to be there because it feels like it's something for the general population, not for our communities that are outside. You need to get in there on the ground level right. and communicate with the people who can get that message out yeah. there and help to put better practices right. in place. Exactly. There's still a role for community-based education and mobilization and coalition building and really providing linkages so that people can, f- can feel part of the process. Is your research helping to shape what's taking place in medical schools and making sure those who are coming out of medical school have all of this in their consciousness? I think so. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've started really working on um, quite a bit at NYU is to develop more of a health disparities curriculum and a curriculum around community-based participatory research to engage medical students, to engage junior faculty who might not be traditionally working in a lot of our communities, and to help them think through the process of um, kind of what Dr. Kwan was just talking about, that you have to be able to engage with communities to be able to address some of these issues. So. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely a big push with medical students now to 
um, you know, have more uh, trainings around culturally tailored care, culturally competent care, um, and community engagement. Outside of the Asian community, where are you finding that the disparities are widest in New York City among immigrant communities? Certainly, you know, the, the Latino community in many ways is similar to the Asian community given the diversity of um, immigration patterns from the variety of uh, South American, Caribbean, et cetera, countries. Um, and, and we see some huge disparities in the Latino community um, around cardiovascular disease, again, um, in mental health, um, and in some areas of um, sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. I think a real emerging community in New York City is the African immigrant community. Um, and I think it's going to increasingly become um, an important community to engage with. It's seen really explosive growth in the last few years, but I think it's, it's again, um, one of those groups that really isn't captured to our, through our data surveillance systems. It's often lumped together with um, African Americans, and they may face unique disparities. Um, coming from you know a very different context, a lot of different needs. You can't address them all. They're not all one. Right. There's probably lots of take-home messages, but I think if there's one important one that emerges from the work that we do, it's that Asian Americans and many other racial and ethnic minority groups are—they're not a monolithic community. It's a very diverse community, and if we want programs and policies to really be effective, first of all, that diversity needs to be acknowledged and reflected in, in the funding streams, in the programmatic efforts, and in the policy efforts. Nadia Islam is the deputy director of the Center for the Study of Asian American Health. Simona Kwan is the director of a national center of excellence in the elimination of hepatitis B disparities. Both are assistant professors at the NYU School of Medicine. You can hear much more about health issues facing New York City's immigrant communities at WFUVnews.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find show updates by liking us on Facebook and following us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Maureen Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. <laughs>